0: Celebrating 30 years at the Weather Channel, Mike Seidel is no stranger to covering storms in every season. Most recently, as Hurricane Ian made landfall in southwest Florida, Mike anchored his live shots from Fort Myers. During one of his segments, Mike said, and I quote, This is one of the worst hurricanes I've ever been in and maybe the worst as far as covering. For a man who has provided over 20,000 live shots and worked in over 90 storms for the Weather Channel, that was a powerful statement and one we want to dig into today. So Mike, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hello, Dr. Shepard. Good to be here with you. You know, I was watching that segment live when you said it, and my jaw dropped because I know that you've been in so many of these storms, and I want to get to that, but I've got to hold true to the spirit of the podcast since this is your first time on it. We always start the podcast by asking every single guest, how'd you become a weather geek?
1: I think it was part of my DNA. I started measuring snowfall at six years old back in Maryland, and I got really cranked up on nor'easters and coastal storms. And where I live near the beach, we didn't get that much snow. And it was always snow, to rain, and then snow on the backside. So I really got uh, worked up when it, when the weather service says we were gonna have a snowstorm. I started, I, in fact, I still have the same ruler that I used some, oh, almost 60 years ago. And uh, my parents used to have to pull me in, get, hey, 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 come on in, it's uh, snowy and cold, I'd be out there in my PJs measuring the snow. And that's what started it. And I kept snow records, I got a weather station, when I was in eighth grade, uh, up on the roof, I tailor instruments. And I kept complete weather records at my house for the whole decade of the 70s before I left town and went up to Penn State to get my master's in meteorology. So I think I was born to be a meteorologist. And then I got into radio when I was 16. So then I combined the two, the science and the broadcasting. And I want to tell you, radio back then was a lot different than now. It was all ad lib and it really taught you how to ad lib and speak spontaneously. And that, that's what you really have to do when you're out in the field. You're, you're not reading a teleprompter, you know, it's all, it's all up in your head and you, you've got to make sense. And a lot of times, like last week with Ian, it was just, you know, it's, it's tough. You got to also balance your balance yourself and, and take the elements and also try to speak and make sense on the air.
0: Yeah, this is Mike Seidel, again, truly a legend at the Weather Channel and also one of the more informative colleagues we have in the field for bringing you the storm and its element. Um, As he mentioned, he has a master's degree in meteorology from Penn State. He also has a bachelor of science, a double major in math and geography from Salisbury State uh, up in Maryland, I believe. Uh, right. Sidell wrote his master's thesis under the direction of the legendary Dr. Greg Forbes, uh, the retired severe weather expert at the Weather Channel. And throughout this podcast, I'm going to be giving you some interesting facts about Mike and his career. Nothing that's going to embarrass him. You should see his face right now. Uh, but, Mike, I want to dive right into the <laughs> comment you made, because you said uh, this was one of if not the worst storms you've been in i mean and that's a that's a weighted statement because you've been in some deuces uh what was it about this particular storm and I, again i was watching your coverage and uh, outstanding coverage as usual what was it oh, that in you. that moment just made you say that
1: it just popped in my head i'm watching the visual that you saw at home through the uh you know through the lens of the camera into the television and it, it was just one of those it just popped up and i'm thinking. I think Ian was my 92nd storm, i.e. tropical storm, anything with a name in it, since 1996. And I I thought back, and this was the worst. I mean, to be in the eye wall of a Cat 4, an almost Cat 5, for five hours, and the visuals, and the video I shot, uh, I've never been in any situation like that. And I have to preface it like I did on the air, Dr. Shepard, that I was covering Katrina. But I was not on the Mississippi Coast when it made landfall with a 28-foot storm surge. That would have been a death wish. So I've covered some strong hurricanes, threes and even fours, but I haven't been basically at ground zero. And so I was basically at ground zero. We weren't on Fort Myers Beach or, or Captiva or Sanibel, but we were just inland on the Caloosahatchee. We had no friction. So we were getting basically the full wind. And I got to see the surge. I've seen. I've gotten a lot of wind before, but not surge like this. This is it. Just and it was amazing, and I think really good TV because between the time I started late morning and until three to four o'clock, when we couldn't get a picture out anymore because of the lack of cell service and bandwidth, you could see the progression of the surge coming up uh, around the hotel on the pool deck, and then obliterating everything. So everything you saw earlier where I was standing was now under set, three, four, five feet of water, and then you have waves crashing in. So that uh, in totality, uh, made it, in my mind, the the worst I've ever seen in person and covered in person. And that video I posted, uh, people have gotten a hold of me, friends of mine, like, whoa, you know, it's like the end of the world. It was. <laughs> when I was shooting it, you hear the wind whistling and the, it, it sounds Somebody like yesterday, I watched it and said it sounded like a hornet. The Just the roar and the, the kind of the buzzing sound. And that was on the back end of the eye wall. That was about four o'clock in the afternoon, which was, by the way, worse than the front end.
0: By far, yeah. I wanted to actually talk to you about that. You know, as a meteorologist myself, I'm watching the radar and I'm looking at satellite imagery and so forth. And it appeared to me that the backside of the sort of of the of the eye wall was had the most significant sort of weather uh, impact potential. Not say that the front side was not devastating, as we know it was. And by the way, our thoughts and prayers go out as if you're listening in that part of Florida. I, I had friends and colleagues and classmates that were certainly impacted by that storm. And I want to talk to you about some of that a bit later as well. But is that your sense of, you know, you just mentioned it, I guess, but it, was it essentially the winds that were just stronger on the backside? That and
1: also the surge had come up. So early on, when we first got the eyewall around, I think it was around noon, I have to tell you about 1130 or 12, that was the last radar I saw for 36 hours, because we had just enough service to make a phone call and get a live shot out but we had no internet so i didn't see the radar basically after about noon but i can tell you that what made it worse than the back end was we already had the surge up it kept coming up and we had those winds gusting over 125 miles an hour early on we had the wind but the surge hadn't really come in that much yet so you had the, the very strong winds combined with the surge that had to be seven or eight feet. In fact, I interviewed several residents and they showed me where the surge came for Charlie, uh, Dr. Shepard, and it came up to like the front stoop of the house. And then this time around, it was up in the house six to seven feet. So that puts it in perspective. I know the gauge at Fort Myers Beach was just under eight feet, but I'm sure the weather service will go back in and check high water marks to reanalyze that because I have to feel that it was higher than the Charlie surge at Fort Myers Beach, which came in at 9.4 feet.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree. I think that this was a record breaking surge. Um, but I think the post analysis will reveal that it was uh, much more significant than some of the earlier numbers or the preliminary numbers that I have heard coming out of the storm. Um, yes. You know, I, the question that comes to mind and I was going to ask you if you had a chance to talk to people before you did your live shots and your live coverage, because uh, the sense is there's been a lot of discussion. I was just on uh, AMHQ with Jim and Stephanie this morning talking about the accuracy of the forecast and wh- whether people in that region sense danger. Uh, from your interaction with people there, was there the sense that something was coming, or was like, it was more like okay, well, you know, going to stay at our north because that's certainly been a topic of discussion here in the post-storm uh, uh, narrative or, or Monday morning quarterbacking, as they say. What what are your thoughts about what people were perceiving? before the storm got there?
1: Well, the folks that I talked to didn't think the water would get even that close to being that high. As I mentioned, front doorstep with Charlie, six to seven feet with Ian. So I think there was a perception that, oh, there's no way we're going to get that much water. So that uh, there were more than a few people, I'm not talking about the barrier islands, but inland that stayed in their houses and they got flooded out. So there was a I think a lot of folks were kind of surprised at how significant the storm surge ended up, but it was forecasted. It was uh, forecasted Sunday night that Lee and Collier County, as early as Sunday night would take a surge, a serious storm surge of, uh, I think it was five to seven feet. Then on Monday, those coastal counties started a mandatory evacuation except for Lee County. And that's been discussed a lot over the past couple of days that they didn't issue their mandatory evacuation until Tuesday. And there's a lot of consternation about that. But I will say that they were always in the cone the whole time. From the weekend on, Southwest Florida was always in the cone. And, you know, the the cone is the cone because there are forecast uh, challenges and you get out for four or five days and you have that cone widening out. But it wasn't like that, that area was never in the cone. It was in the cone from the get go once it hit the U.S., once the fifth day hit the U.S., which was basically the first cone out of the out of the uh, gate with Ian.
0: Yeah, I, you, know, it's, you know, I've written a Forbes article just this week on that, because the cone certainly uh, from Friday on, I think Brian McNulty over at University of Miami made that point in a tweet. Um, and that, that really suggests that there's at least a 67% chance that the center of that storm is going to be somewhere in that cone. Uh, I, I know we have some forecast challenges. I know there's some interpretation challenges in terms of how people consume that cone. Uh, as you noted, and as Dr. Nab tweeted recently, uh, storm surge warnings. He said, six years ago, we didn't have a storm surge warning product of its own from the Hurricane Center, but now we do. And those surge warnings were up. So it's a challenge because you got, yeah, this is a nuanced conversation because to the people that didn't either perceive that message or maybe didn't sort of understand the cone and so forth, you know, they they took hits and they have, their lives have been changed. So I, I want to be very sensitive sensitive to that. But we as meteorologists, we have to kind of Monday morning quarterback this to understand how, you know, we all can improve uh, risk communication. But clearly you, you knew something was up. The Weather Channel knew something up was up because that's where you placed yourself. You were in that, in that moment, now, which brings the question, you know, you talked about you got to see the surge, you know, see it, see it in a way that you have it. And there have been people that have been critical of coverage of like yours and Cantori and others that are out there in the storm. But another perspective on this thats that, is that You're you're showing firsthand, uh, likely putting yourself at risk, by the way, but showing firsthand the dangers. And that could have um, risk saving. I mean, life saving implications for people that, you know, maybe don't really know how much this force of water and wind can be. What are your thoughts there?
1: Well, I have to agree with you because the surge was very visual. As I said earlier, if you watched the coverage for three or four hours, you saw how the water just came up and up and up. And then the waves started crashing in and across the whole deck, the pool deck area. And that was a great example of how the water comes in. Now, we had a great location. We scouted this out. I started out down right at the dock. So I was basically just a couple of feet above the river level. And I said on air, when this surge comes up, we've got a higher place, 15 to 20 feet up. And about 1130 or 12, I said, this is the last shot here. We're going up because the water at that point was about a foot and a half deep and waves were crashing in. And it was coming up. And, you know, it doesn't come in like a tsunami wave. It comes up gradually. So then we went up to a higher point and used the portico, which went around the hotel for the next three hours. Uh, At one point, uh, right after I was there by the dock, I went over to the pool deck. That was higher up. So when I got there and started my coverage, there was no surge coming in at that point. It was just starting to come in a little bit over the over the concrete wall and the fence. And then the uh, same thing happened again. When the surge got up about one foot or so, we went to higher ground. We were up on the portico at that point. And basically what I did from there is just did a talk over what they call voiceover of the shot because it was too dangerous, <clears throat> excuse me, to be out in those winds gusting over 120, 25 miles an hour. And so we just showed, showed the video, we, we zoomed in and we were well protected from the wind and the rain uh, up on the portico. And that's where we stayed. And then after we did the three o'clock shot, management said, you got to get off the portico. We were the only ones out there basically all morning. Everybody else was up in the rooms, even early on before the surge came in, they were shooting from the hotel room. So then we went up to my room on the third floor. And that was that was an incredible shot. I was like, that's the one that video I posted on social and we showed on the air a lot. It was just, you know, bird's eye view, we're on the balcony and amazingly so where we were on the balcony my balcony there was no wind. there was little if any wind and rain it was just blowing around us but not at us so it it's very safe up there and we were shooting down at this you know almost this high-end cat ford just devastating southwest florida the only frustrating part was after about four o'clock we couldn't get another shot out so we could have covered the eye wall for another couple of hours but we didn't have bandwidth Nobody there. None of the networks. Other networks had bandwidth too, so we were on the same boat. But we were able to get a couple of shots out from the um, balcony, and that—that that was the video. And it just incredible. I mean, the the wind, the howling, the like the buzzsaw, and and the six foot waves or so breaking into the pool deck. And like I said, the the hotel was built up, so the first floor was like the underground parking garage and storage areas. No no nothing got into the hotel itself. It was so high up. The only thing that got in, of course, was the wind-driven rain and the carpets were wet. But the hotel did very well structurally. Very well structurally.
0: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Mike Seidel of the Weather Channel, uh, who had uh, coverage of Ian and stated that this was one of, if not the worst storm he's seen. And he's seen a lot of. And so we wanted to talk to him on Weather Geeks and do a deep dive. Uh, He has provided some extraordinary coverage of this storm and storms over the years. I want to give you a little bit more of his background. Uh, Seidel's first full-time broadcasting position was in Greenville, South Carolina uh, in the 80s. And then he returned back to S- Salisbury to work as a meteorologist. And then he joined the Weather Channel in March 1992. His first storm covered was we- for the Weather Channel was Hurricane Edward on Labor Day weekend, 1996, in Cape Cod. Mike, how does that first storm coverage of Edward uh, compare to ian
1: oh that was a whole different animal also the technology cell phones were just barely out we had no internet in the field basically uh i mean weather.com i think just came to an existence like a year before and it was just maps so from a technology standpoint from a uh, access of the data standpoint a much different situation edward was went off cape cod on labor day weekend so we probably gusted maybe 40, 50 miles an hour, had a fair amount of rain. And really, that was it. There was some there was some wind damage, but nothing like Ian, because it, it did make landfall and it, it stayed east of the Cape. But it was my first adventure. If you don't count the live shot with Cantori in the parking lot at the Weather Channel during Hurricane <laughs> Opal. Yes, I remember that when it came up through Atlanta, I went out uh, into the parking lot and did a live shot. And uh, that's that's on uh, my YouTube channel. It's, it's always fun to look at it. Uh, I'm out there looking young and tory has got hair. And that was uh, with Opal. That was in October of 1995. And he threw it to me from the what we called the update desk back then. That was at the number, that was at our second building. Now we're in our third building. and We've been there for 25 years. And I did a shot out there and that was actually my first quote live shot of the over 24,000 I've done. But yeah, Edward was an adventure. I can tell you that My luggage did not get there on time, and it started raining. So the photog gave me his yellow rain slicker. And unbeknownst to me, on the back of the rain slicker was the Eastern Airlines logo. (laughs) So when I turned around, people were seeing the Eastern Airlines Wings of Man logo. And then my jacket, then my uh, luggage arrived, and I quickly took off the yellow rain slicker. That that was uh, one of the uh, highlights from my first trip back in uh, 1996 to Cape Cod and, and good old uh, Chatham.
0: Yes, I, I actually remember that very well. I think I was a graduate student down at Florida State when, when, when you speak of some of that coverage. I want to get back to Ian because, again, life-altering storm. And something you said earlier. You talked about how you talk to people and, You know, I think for many people in that region, Charlie was a reference point for them. But I Mm -hmm. think our colleague Stu Ostro tweeted an image that showed that uh, Charlie literally fit in the eye almost of Ian. So though they were similar storms in terms of their magnitudes, this was a much larger storm in terms of its footprint. And so uh, you were going to have a much more expansive impact uh, regime and those impacts were going to begin earlier. So. How, Mike, in your experience as a meteorologist, as a communicator, as someone that's covered uh, these storms, how do we convey risk when we know that people have This sort of what I call normalcy bias, which is that, well, I've lived through or ridden out these storms before uh, when a normalcy bias might not apply for to uh, an anomaly event, an event that's outside the range of their experience. How how do we convey risk or convince them that maybe this is one you need to leave for and so forth?
1: Yeah, good point, because there's been a lot of discussion after Ian about the Saffir-Simpson scale, because that's purely based on wind not based on the size of the storm, the forward motion of the storm. You know, all those issues come to come to uh, pass when you talk about how many people get impacted, how much surge is there? Charlie was a very small storm. It was like a buzzsaw, it moved very quickly. Uh, the impact area was small. It was like a giant tornado, I think. Uh, and it did bring Orlando, it's highest wind gust, 106 miles an hour. When you talk about Charlie, you get this huge, I mean, I'm sorry, when you talk about Ian, you have this huge storm. and you're right. People think, OK, I went through Cat4 Charlie. This is Cat4 uh, Ian. Uh, I was fine. But there was a huge difference because it was slower. It was larger. And the storm surge prediction values, the, the storm surge was much higher. And it went way uh, four miles inland, I think someone told me, based on from the barrier island inland into Fort Myers. The water went so I couldn't believe how far the water went inland. Granted, the area is flat, so it doesn't have to go up you know, elevation. But that was uh, amazing. But the the idea, I think, is to let people know. And I think we did a pretty good job of that. I know I mentioned it. Jim mentioned it, that this was not Charlie. This was a much bigger storm, had a much wider footprint uh, impact, certainly with wind and surge. And that's why we wanted people. And that's why everybody wanted people to get out of harm's way. And I know I talked to people that stayed in their houses because they thought, eh, four is a four. I went through a four with Charlie, no water got in my house, had some wind damage. Eh, I'll stay here. But as we know, things turned out a lot differently. But we we let them know, but people have that, like you said, mindset that all fours are all fours are created equal. And that's not, that's not true. Just like sometimes you can have, a, for instance, you can have a tropical storm that slows down and it jump, dumps 25, 30 inches of rain. Or you can have a hurricane, a cat buzz on by at 20 miles an hour and you get three or four inches of rain. So right there, there's a disconnect between it's all in the nomenclature and the fact that Saffir Simpson Simpson is just purely wind speed. So I don't know if there's going to be an effort in the future years because we've added the storm surge component to add something more that lets people know. The Hurricane Center did that fine in their statements. Remember, Dr. Mar- uh, Dr. Uh, Shepard, they did mention this is a large storm, a large and dangerous storm. I don't know if they compared it to Charlie, but they were trying to get the point across that it's going to affect a lot of people, which it did.
0: Yeah, I I think this, and I've had this conversation because you're right. I mean, if you go back even to Hurricane Harvey, uh, much of the rain that was dumped in Houston and parts of Southeast Texas was after Harvey had been downgraded. It wasn't really a strong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So each of these storms takes on its character. So I think we do. And I know there's some efforts. I mean, I've got my ear to the ground in the research world, and there are some efforts to sort of develop impact-based metrics. Hurricane Center definitely has some impact-based messaging that they give, but I just don't know that the average person's perhaps aware of it, unless they're watching folks like you all and so forth. Uh, Another thing that I'm increasingly thinking about, and and the Weather Channel doesn't do this, actually. You do not put a center line on your cones uh, on the Weather Channel, uh, but I know a lot of people do. uh, And I'm just wondering whether we need to do that. I mean, because I still think a lot of people zero in on that point and that, or those points, those dots and those lines, and sort of forget this 65, 67% sort of chance that the center will be anywhere in that cone. So uh, I, I just, I think we do need a conversation and I know social scientists are thinking about this as well on sort of, I think we need a new playbook, Mike. I think you're sort of, I think we need to fundamentally all of us rethink how we message these storms. I mean, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure, but I think we took the center line off some years ago because people did focus on the line. I, I, that's my memory of what happened at the Weather Channel. And so that people would see the cone. And if you're in the cone, you need to be prepared. And like I said earlier, Southwest Florida, Tampa, you were in the cone from the get go. But people were looking at that little skinny line. Oh, it's going to go into Tampa. We don't have to worry down here in Fort Myers and Naples. Well, but on Sunday night, the hurricane center said, you know, storm surge, watch five to seven feet. And maybe it'd been a warning by Sunday night. It's certainly Monday. So, the thing is, even though the center, even if it had gone up to Tampa, they would have still had a huge storm surge on that uh, south uh, south flank because there would have been that huge push of water into those counties. Maybe yeah. not quite as much if it had gone north, certainly, but they still would have had a lot of surge. They would have had less wind. And of course, rain was not a big issue south of the track. We didn't maybe have three inches of rain in uh, Fort Myers. But people just look at that skinny line. Look, I have friends. You have friends, Dr shepherd that text you oh it's going into Tampa now we don't have to worry yeah and I I always tell them no 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 we're three days out that's why we have the cone it's not you know I had friends that were overseas they have a home in Naples they left and they kept watching they thought okay we're gonna be okay we're gonna have some surge but then they got you know they got a lot of water in their house and uh, wind damage so you just can't write it off especially with that cone yeah the skinny line the skinny line is an issue I think people just look at that skinny line on day four or five and think, oh, we're fine.
0: Yeah, it it, it really is. I think it's a problem because people just see it as a dot or a line and hurricane impacts are much larger. And I think the discussion that you and I have had about just the difference in size between Charlie and Ian, I mean, that sort of the impacts are just going to be so different for those different types of storms. I want to take one quick, quick break and then we'll come back for our last segment. (sighs)
1: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. I'm talking with Mike Seidel, and we're talking about his coverage of Hurricane Ian and also his thoughts on messaging hurricanes and the risk involved. Some other interesting facts about Mike Seidel. He became the first weather channel and U.S. meteorologist to report live from Cuba during the coverage of Tropical Storm Isaac back in 2012. And by the way, Hurricane Ian actually did make a landfall in Cuba as well. So our thoughts and and prayers are out to those folks as well. On January 12, 2018, Seidel did his 20,000th live shot during a snowstorm in Rochester, New York. So uh, Mike's been in the elements. Uh, He's actually recording this podcast in the elements from his backyard. Uh, I wanted to kind of, in this last segment, just get your thoughts on, uh, give, give the the listeners some thoughts on the inside track on this coverage, because people see you, but it takes a team to do these live shots. Can you give the listeners of Weather Geeks a sense of just how many people are involved in those live shots and what's going on on, on that on a given moment there?
1: Oh, yeah, this is a great question, because I get this all the time. What The first question I get, Dr. Uh, Shepard, is, um, do you fly on a private jet? <laughs> No, not unless that jet has the name on it called Delta. No, we don't have a private jet. Uh, Neither does Cantori. We fly commercial out of Atlanta. In fact, that was one of the two reasons the Weather Channel was put in Atlanta back in 1982. A, the climate, and B, uh, that airport. That's what I was told. So I believe believe most of what I'm told. So we uh, fly commercial and we get on our flights. I flew to Tallahassee on Sunday a week ago. So that was about three days before landfall. But even on Sunday, we thought, well, landfall could be Thursday or Friday because remember the GFS was taking it into the panhandle and it was a day and a half or so later. So I went to Tallahassee and set up on Apalachicola uh, over at the St. George Island. I suggested I go there to uh, Tom Lee, who's the VP of uh, news gathering and he's the one that's over the coverage because we already had Jim and Paul Goodlow in the Tampa area. So I'm thinking, put me on the left side of the cone. So we've got coverage on both sides of the cone, because we're still at least at this on Sunday, we're still at least three, four, maybe five days out from landfall. So we went there. We did our shots on Monday. And as far as my crew, I have a producer and a photographer and the photographer has an audio guy. So it's basically a crew of four. And we uh, lined up. We usually lined up our own hotel rooms. We found a hotel on the beach. And. We knew that if it was going to actually hit up there, we'd have to go back to Appalachicola like we did with uh, I believe, Chris Warren during Michael. But then by Tuesday, uh, it was evident we we're going to have to move. In fact, we pre-booked rooms down around Crystal River and Steenhatchee, north of Tampa, with the thought that if it goes into Tampa, we'll cover the north flank where there's going to be a lot of rain. There'll be wind, no surge, but just a ton of rain. So instead of moving Wednesday, the desk called, Okay, head to Fort Myers. So Tuesday morning, we packed up and we convoyed down to Fort Myers. We left at 1030 in the morning. We got to our hotel at 730 on Tuesday night. So this is just hours before we got into the uh, eye wall, got a nice dinner, got to bed. And then we got up early. We're supposed to start at 1 p.m., but we started earlier because just because of what was going on with uh, the radar and that we were going to get into the eye wall sooner. And then we did our coverage there. The power went out, the water went out there. So it was, uh, you know, we had, to, we. by the way, on the way, and we do this a lot, we stopped and got groceries. We did that in Puerto Rico and we did that there. And I ate, uh, you know, non-perishable food for a couple of days. We got up Thursday morning and we, had to, we did some shots. We had to go up on the roof of the parking garage. Again, cell service, which uh, was har- hardly even there. We had, I think, one company giving us enough bandwidth to get a couple of shots out. Because we all now use what we call Live Viewer TVU, which is a broadcasting widget that uses cell phone cards. Satellite trucks are not used that much anymore. And so you're at the whim of the self-service. It took us two hours to get out of the hotel because there was a long road drive out to the Sanibel Island Causeway. And it was blocked by trees. So we got out of that. And then we started gathering content. We got into the Fort Myers Beach area, not over the call, not over the bridge, but on this side of the barrier island. And we talked to a lot of folks there were boats everywhere we grabbed interviews the guy that saved his dog with a surfboard and we did that until we did that for about six five hours and then we went back to a walmart parking lot to feed all the video so we could get it all in we weren't sure we're going to feed it and then amazingly cell service came back 5g 4 bars i think what happened uh, Governor DeSantis had said they were going to send in these portable cell phone towers. I think one must have been sent in and turned on because it was just like someone clicked a switch. So we got our video in and then we uh, did live shots from 6 to 8.30 into the into the dark. And then at that point, we didn't have a hotel that night. So we found one over in Broward County, which is on the other side of the state. And we went over there and got a hot meal. And uh, by the time we got into the hotel, it was, it was an 18-hour day. So it takes... It takes a hardworking crew. You have to have a good work ethic because the days are long and the weather's not great. And sometimes, like for lunch Thursday, we had an apple. Charles Peake brought us some apples. Oh, so we wow. had an apple for lunch. So it, it's, um, uh, you know, I love the coverage. We all love the coverage. Uh, it, it, It is, though, tiring and um, it, it's just tiring and exhausting. And it's good to get back home and, and uh, get some sleep. So we had a bunch of crews out. We had, I don't know, eight or nine crews out. Each crew has about four people and the desk is is figuring out where they should go. And then we had the second landfall in South Carolina. So we already had Chris Warren in Jacksonville. They had to get a crew down to uh, Charleston and Myrtle Beach. So Reynolds Wolf went to Charleston and Alex Wallace went to Myrtle Beach and they both caught the second landfall. Uh, Alex is on the north side of landfall, so we had the the, the stronger visual. Charleston had a, a lot of rainfall; they had record rainfall. And then we followed it all the way into Charlotte. So the the news desk has to juggle all these crews as the storm is moving. Now a lot of storms have one landfall and that's it, but this one came back in, so you've got to get people to the coast of the Carolinas. But then most of your people are still in Florida, so you're you know you've got to find folks, you've got to man the studio. So it really takes it's really an all hands on deck situation. We were around the clock coverage 24/7 from Tuesday until Friday. So that involves extra uh, talent in the studio and it uh, it all came together. I think our coverage looked terrific from what I saw, what I've seen in the past, but it's um you know, you get on your Delta Jet, you get to where you need to go. Now with snowstorms, you tend to get somewhere and you stay there and then you come home. Right. Usually there's not that much jogging around but with hurricanes with the cone. Uh, it's rare that you go somewhere three or three days out or four days out and and end up there for the entire storm coverage. It just usually that doesn't happen. All
0: right. I can't let this podcast end without this question, because you mentioned that this was possibly the worst you've been in. What's right. the reference point before this storm? I mean, what what sort of ranked up there prior to this one?
1: i was in floyd when it came into north carolina in mid-september 1999 i was in the eye wall then the eye at 3:30 in the morning i got into the eye that's the only eye i have been in so that was that was a uh, cat two had just come down to a cat two and the other one was katrina i was in katrina but i was not on the coast as i said on the air i was in mobile so we were just inland but the winds there were gusting uh, 90 to 100. We had a lot of rain and we had surge into downtown Mobile. I, I don't remember exactly. I think six, seven, eight feet of water downtown that evening, that Monday. I think it was a Monday evening. So those are the two that came to mind when I made that statement because I had to play back my whole 90 storms. And those are the two that come to, to mind, Dr. Shepard, uh, in saying that this is the worst I'd seen because... Like I said with Katrina, I wasn't at landfall. Uh, anybody that was is probably not with us, but that's uh, how I came to say that yes, this is the worst I've seen, the worst I've been in by far. I mean, the pictures were just crazy. And this, I had the surge employed, but it was nothing like this. Yeah, uh, I was on the intercoastal, the surge came up, but we didn't have four or five foot waves. And what I remember of that early morning, in uh, back in 99, it just slowly rose into the parking lot from the intercoastal. Nothing like, nothing like Ian last week. Just That was just uh, like some folks were telling me it looked like the end of the world. And it, it kind of was
0: for a few yeah. hours. Yeah. It just, a, just an unfortunate uh, a tragedy for many people there. And our, again, our hearts go out to anyone and, listening that was directly impacted by this storm or in, indirectly impacted as well.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and the other thing is, Remember in August, we had no-name storms?
0: Yes. In
1: September, we thought we're going to get by scot Free, and and then the switch turned on, and we had Fiona, and then we had, you know, it like in 1992 with Andrew, we had six storms. The first one was Andrew, horrible storm. So this yes. year we had a fair amount of storms, but, you know, it just, as we say, it just takes one. And unfortunately, this is another eye storm that will get, obviously, get retired. This name will not be used again.
0: Yeah, there are there's a saying in the meteorological community, beware of the ice storm. And absolutely, this is another example. And even as we're recording this in October, early October, I mean, we still have several weeks of the season left. So I encourage listeners not to let their guard down. Mike, Mike, thank you so, so very much for I know you have a busy schedule and you're also probably resting up from that coverage. But thank you and your crew and everyone, at the Weather Channel for your coverage on this storm.
1: Much appreciated. It was finally. Yeah. Finally, great to get on Weather Geeks because I've been listening to it and it's nice to be part of the uh, process. Mike Chesterfield and JD Disher and the meteorologist. Those are two of the other gentlemen in the background that get this program on the air every week. And we also appreciate your hard work, Dr. Shepard, because not only do you do this, you've got a full load over there at the University of Georgia. So thanks to everybody behind the scenes, just like you thanked everybody behind the scenes, the literally several hundred people that got us on the air and got us through Ian last week at the Weather Channel.
0: Yeah, I agree. We it's a, it is an amazing crew. So, like like you, there it takes a village to get this this podcast going. And you know, we've got several people involved that you mentioned. And Rodney Higgins is uh, on the boards here today with us uh, on this as well, and you know, Heather Zans is doing our social media uh, and so forth. So I, yeah, it's really a team. But again, I want to thank you. We've we've wanted you on. We just haven't been able to kind of make it happen. So I'm glad we were able to get you on. But before we get out of here. We've got to highlight our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. (laughs) This episode's geek of the week is Sam Block. Sam is a college student hoping to become a natural disaster response uh, professional after college, particularly in the communications and public policy side of major weather events. His favorite type of weather is tropical cyclones, and he remembers skipping school one day to watch coverage of Hurricane Irma. Mike Seidel, thank you again for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: Thank you, sir.
0: And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on the podcast.